This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Hi everybody, welcome to the podcast today. My name is Falgun Kompali and I'm one of the co-founders of Upgrad. Today we have a very special guest with us, Sir Deanne Hopkin, who is a world-renowned academic and also a higher education administrator. He served in various leadership positions, including as a vice chancellor and CEO of London South Bank and also as the president of the National Library of Wales. He also holds various positions like he's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, the Royal Society of Arts, he's a freeman of the City of London and the list is very long. Uh, so welcome Sir Deanne for the conversation today and it's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the program with you, Falgan, and to be working with you on a very exciting set of projects. Thank you, Sadian. I think as with the agenda for today's session, I think there are a few things that both of us have spent a lot of time uh, trying to understand in terms of how they will evolve. And one of that has been the future of university education, because today universities are dealing with a lot of change. Um, because of the kind of courses, the kind of programs and student expectations, one that have evolved over the last decade, but also most recently with COVID in terms of moving from a purely on-campus model to a blended model, both for international students and also for domestic students. So Zadian, you're the expert and you've seen this for a long time. So what is your view on how universities are going to evolve globally uh, to adjust for some of these macro trends? Well, Falcon, I think we should remind ourselves that universities have been around for the best part of a thousand years. By the way, I haven't been around for a thousand years, but, you know, I've been around for quite a long time. And universities have, over the centuries, had to adapt, admittedly very slowly, but they have been slowly adapting and adjusting to the demands of the day. What's happened, I think, in recent years has been an acceleration in all sorts of ways. We're in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution. There's massive demographic change. People's working lives, certainly in many parts of the world, are getting longer and, of course, very interestingly, people are having shorter careers. You know, when I started out, you expected to work in the same job all your life. And I stayed in universities all my career. But most people now find that they have to change and adapt. And the jobs that they started with may well disappear. So education, and particularly higher education, has to recognize that whatever you're teaching people today, whatever subjects you're doing today, in 10 years' time, it'll be a different landscape. And it's that pace of change that is the challenge for universities. You know, they are relatively slow-moving beasts, and, and now they find they have to move very quickly. And of course, nothing has made them move as quickly as the last 18, 24 months with the a whole business of COVID, the first the in the beginnings of COVID, and then suddenly the realization that this is actually uh, something far bigger than anything they'd faced before. That meant that universities had to start looking again at what they do. Now, having said that, you know, we do tend to think that everything we do is new and something, you know, that's not been tried before. Well, blended learning, uh, online learning has been around for quite a while. I mean, 50 years ago, the Open University in Britain started. It was the first to use uh, a system of education where the students learnt 
from home or came to study centers, used radio, television, and the rest. That was revolutionary. But most universities didn't see the need to do that. Now, of course, in the last 18 months, certainly, they've realized that that is something they have to do. And that has been the big challenge. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you an interesting question there, uh, Sardian, and put you on a little bit of a spot. Uh, one of the most iconic institutes, as you said, right, universities have been around for thousands of years. One of the most iconic ones is the Oxford University in UK. Mm-hmm. Today, if you were made the leader of Oxford University, the provost or the vice chancellor, what would you do differently in terms of chartering the course for Oxford University for the next hundred years, if not for the next thousand years? I think that's a, you know, I'd expect a challenge like that from you, Falcon, but that is really quite a demanding one. Of course, let's be clear. There are some universities which don't need to change quite like others do. Oxford has a particular kind of educational process, which is unlikely to be challenged for a long time. But what I think Oxford and universities like Oxford have to ask is what kind of curriculum, what kind of teaching are they going to offer which will equip their students to be as employable in the future, to occupy the same leadership positions in the future as they have been doing in the past. So the challenge for them in terms of curriculum development is the same as for everybody else. It may be that they'll always be able to attract students because, let's be honest, there will be people who want that very high prestige experience. But on the other hand, if those students come out and they're not in the long term employable, that will reflect on them. So they, like everybody else, have to ask questions. Is what we're doing relevant Uh, for the future. But above all, how can we help our students to become more adaptable? Because we don't know what's going to happen. We have no idea what kind of new technologies are coming. We don't even know what kind of jobs that are going to be. What we do know is that people must be equipped to be able to adapt to those changes. And that means a combination, I think, of The subject that people are doing, which is very important, although the knowledge of that subject may well change, let's be honest, but equally those other things like soft skills, something that your colleague Ronnie Scruvala has referred to, the importance of the complete experience. Absolutely. And while we spoke about universities and how they need to evolve their thought process, so at the end today, if you were talking to a 17 or an 18 year old teenager who is considering what kind of education they should get at the undergrad level. What would your advice be to them in terms of what are some of the key things that they should look out for, some of the key skills and competencies that they should build uh, to remain relevant and competitive for the next 50 years? Well, you know, it's a, that's a very interesting question because you assume that undergraduate education is the way that people need to go. But we're now beginning to recognize that maybe sitting in a university for three years is not the only route, not even in many cases the best route for actually developing your skills. We're now beginning to see, certainly in the United Kingdom, but also elsewhere, the development of internship, of apprenticeships, where people actually are able to join a company, but do their education at the same time. And a lot of people, you know, are choosing not to go to a standard university, but actually learn in a different way, getting the same level of learning in the end, but actually doing it while they're working, while they're developing their skills in work. In other words, we can't assume that one one suit fits all. 
there, there are going to be different routes. And at the same time, we think of a young 17-year-old. Do you know, I'm very concerned about the 37 and 47-year-old because they've yeah. got many years ahead of them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, so that's a great point, Sadia. Now, coming to the 37 and 47-year-olds that you were referring to, uh, that's where I sometimes wonder about the future of corporate learning, right? Uh, and I think you alluded to this before that, like, for example, I think if I look at my parents, uh, they worked in a single job for 40 years, right? And they were very happy doing it. But if I look at the current young generation, they change jobs on average every four to five years. So there was a survey that was recently conducted, which said that people are going to change at least seven or eight, make seven or eight career shifts as part of their entire professional journey, which is massive. And when you think of that, gone are the days when people can say that, look, I attended or did my MBA or master's 30 years or 40 years back and I'm still relevant and I need not learn, right? Given how fast technology is changing, how fast people are moving careers. So what do you think is the outlook uh, or what is your point of view on how these 37 year olds or 47 year olds can constantly, you know, be on the cutting edge and remain relevant and contribute meaningfully uh, to society? You know, Falcon, I think the answer lies with the providers, those who actually develop and offer courses. And I think what we have to recognize is the power and the importance of lifelong learning. I mean, learning isn't something you stop doing when you're 18, passing an exam or 21 and you've done your degree and that's it. Lifelong learning means that you are actually recognizing the need to keep on updating, keep on going. Now, that means that somebody has to provide that. And historically, universities have not always been very good at that, except what they call ex extramural courses, which are not quite the same thing. But universities yeah. have tended to focus on a certain kind of student. We now need a new kind of provision, a provision which offers people an opportunity to step on and step off, not necessarily having to do a year course, two years, three years, certainly not a three-year course, but able to build up credits, learn, and also get recognition. And that's the crucial thing, is getting recognition of what they've done. So when they do move from one job to another, they carry with them the credits of learning that they've acquired. That's why I personally, by the way, am a great believer in microcredits. People are you know, doing smaller bites, which are much more relevant yeah. to the kind of world we're moving in, and then building those up in different ways and getting the qualifications in a different way they did in the past. Absolutely. And uh, the other question there that most 35-year-olds ask us, right, is how do we do something that is credible? Uh, given that, look, traditionally, offline education is the one that's credible because of the university brands associated and online still has a perception of being not as rigorous, not as engaging, maybe not the same level of outcomes. Uh, and that's why most people say that I don't have the luxury to do a full-time course on campus, leaving my professional and personal commitments behind. At the same time, I'm not really sure of online. And they seem to be stuck in this limbo of, okay, now I don't know what to do. Uh, so how do you see the credibility of online building up or the options that traditional universities offer evolving for this older set of audience uh, for them to pursue this vision and the need for lifelong learning? 
Well, I had to say this. I don't think I entirely agree with you, actually, Falcon, on this, because I think people are beginning to recognize that online learning can offer them a very rich experience. I think what matters is the quality of the provisions coming. And that's where I think a partnership between online providers who know how to deliver these courses, people like Upgrad, with which, you know, you and I are associated and with we're all associated, you know, the knowledge of, the, of delivering good quality technology and the rest of it. But in partnership with people who are content providers. And I think, I really do think that there's a very exciting future for a marriage between the traditional academic cohort, the people who are the experts, the specialists, but who can then actually pass their knowledge in packages in a way that the online provider can deliver. That, of course, and you're talking about the 37-year-old or the older these are people will have responsibilities for jobs, for families, other obligations. They need a flexible form of learning, but of the same yeah. quality. Absolutely. That brings me to another point. <laughs> Sorry, I've wondered. I've been in education for now, not as long as you for sure, not even close, but for... Uh... Nobody's been <laughs> as long as me. <laughs> but I think one of the things that has always struck me about higher education especially was that scale and quality are considered to be opposing forces, right? If you look at the world's best universities, in a certain sense, they are exclusive clubs. They are extremely selective, limited capacity. They have not grown capacity in years. They've restricted it. And that's, you know, a certain status symbol, as you mentioned. And universities that deliver education at scale are generally not considered to be high quality. So there seems to be this counter perception of how quality and scale interact in a higher education system. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because fundamentally for us, the vision is to say that look, scale and quality can go hand in hand. It's like to get an example from a different industry, right? Let's say Nike. It is definitely probably the best sports shoes in the world. And there is a lot of people wearing those shoes. Similarly, Apple phone. It's probably the best phone out there or one of the best phones out there. And there are a lot of people doing it only because more people are doing the same thing doesn't necessarily take away the outcomes and the quality that that can provide. But in higher education, the mindset seems to operate slightly differently. I think I, I, that's fascinating for me. And I just wanted to get your point of view uh, in terms of how you think about this quality and scale issue in higher education. I think there's a bit of a myth that the small inst institution gives you greater, greater credibility. Yes, it's true that some of those prestigious universities are relatively small. On the other hand, I can think of very large universities in California and elsewhere, which are enormous, and the quality is every bit as good. It's about perception. It's about all sorts of other factors. But I think at the end of the day, it's not the scale that matters. It's the quality of the interaction that takes place within that scale. In other words, what kind of support mechanism are you offering the student? That's where some of the smaller institutions are able to provide that, you know, that close, close affinity with a tutor. And you know what? Online teaching can actually offer that in a way that many traditional universities can't. You know, we're beginning to ask the question, why do you take 200, 300 people into a large lecture theater at a time which is inconvenient for everybody, where they can barely hear what's going on and they've forgotten what they've learned when they've gone out of the room? You know, compare that with being able to get a very rich 
product, a very rich cohort of material with intervention by a tutor at home, wherever you are, on the train, on your mobile, that can be every bit as rich an experience. A different experience, nobody's comparing them, but it's not either or. They are both valuable. And I think one of the things we spoke about, uh, Sadian, in terms of people now valuing, let's say, the need for not doing a full undergrad degree or getting a fancy elite master's degree and doing something else which is stackable or of a different nature. I think for people to build credibility and comfort around that, one of the key things is going to be how employers recruit. Right? And that's an important lever because as long as employers keep going back to the standard default way of recruiting saying that, okay, I will go to Oxford and pick up 10 MBA graduates or I'll go to Harvard and pick up 5 MBA graduates, people will tend to gravitate towards the same programs and towards the same kind of learning. Right? So have you seen any shift in how companies are looking at recruiting talent, uh, which will in turn, let's say, change how higher education is structured and the kind of options that people have. Well, it's very interesting you should say this because uh, some years ago, I dealt with a large number of senior, senior employers who said, we don't care where the student has gone. We're not even asking which university they went to. We just want to see what they're like. And we will actually find that out for ourselves. And very often, they'll find that out through internships, from offering sandwich courses, so that you know, the employer can make up their own mind. The other thing, by the way, it's when you employ or uh, when you bring employers into the development process, ask employers, what are you looking for? Sometimes they, they don't know, but you can help them find out what they're looking for. Help them to help you to develop relevant courses. That way, the employers then know that what is being produced is something which is relevant to them. And I think that's the way forward. I think we're seeing far more partnerships taking place, and that's particularly taking place, of course, in the world of online learning, where employers can, in fact, and companies and businesses can get involved in helping to shape this. There is a danger. The danger, of course, is that many companies today won't be around in a number of years' time because technology will have left them behind. So they yeah. also need to adapt their workforce to help them adapt to change. So it's a two-way process. Absolutely. But on that point, Sadian, uh, I think still an overwhelming number of jobs and roles have things like need to be graduating from an elite tier one institute, need to be graduating from an Ivy League, need to have an MBA to apply for this job. So there is still a lot of you know, dependence on the old credentialing system because of which I, I think students naturally feel like, okay, I don't, I don't have any option except to get an MBA because all jobs seem to be asking for it, at least on the face of it. So how do you think that is going to change to help promote some of these newer credentials and newer forms of learning? I think it's going to change because there's the emergence of different kinds of qualification. But you know something, how many people actually 
uh, ask somebody three, four years ahead, or went, where did you go? You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to promote you because you went to such and such university. As soon as you leave a university, as soon as you got a degree, in a way, it gradually becomes less and less relevant. It's how you're performing in work that matters. It's how you yeah. adapt to work that matters. And in a way, I think there's a bit of education to be done to help employers also understand the value of people's participation in work, the way they're learning in work, not simply what they learned in the past. That's a very interesting point where one, once you're in a job, the progression in that particular company or in that particular role, I think is not as much dependent on what you have done in college, but very dependent on the kind of performance you're putting in at work. But most places where people are looking for a change, let's say you want your foot in the door, either out of college or you want to move to a new company. That's where old school traditional credentials still seem to be playing a big role because you know that's a very strong signaling value. Let's say I want to move from Google today to Amazon and Amazon does not have any idea of the kind of work I have done in Google. I can talk about it but it's you know, very hard to communicate, everybody embellishes so it's hard to differentiate between candidate X and candidate Y. But what's very easy to see is that candidate X went to Oxford versus candidate Y went to some other college. So there still seems to be that signaling value that is very important, which is why people value these old school or traditional credentials in terms of getting your foot in the door in the initial stages. I think that's beginning to change, really. I think we're beginning to see the development of work passports, which actually accumulate, you know, on paper, the kind of things you've learned in work. A lot of big companies actually want to see that as much as anything else. I think the interest in microcredits and people's demonstration that they are still learning, that is a very yeah. important point. If you show to your employer, I am still learning, I'm still developing, and that's where the provision of smaller courses or indeed the provision of postgraduate qualifications while you're at home, while you're in work, you, you know, you can't expect people to go back to university to do that. You know, this, it's, it's impractical for a vast number of people, but people can gain these extra qualifications. But I think we do also have a big effort to educate employers and everybody to understand it's not simply the certificate that it is important, not simply where you want important. It's what are the qualities that this individual has in terms of communication skills, engagement with others, project management, and that requires people continually learning how to adapt, how to develop themselves. And I think if I was an employer, I'd be far more impressed if somebody came along and says, I'm still doing this. My interest is in developing my skills in this rather than where did you go 10 years ago? That's very interesting. That's very interesting. On a side note, sir, and this is something that I think uh, I've been wondering for a while, right? Uh, and you have a very broad and strong perspective on this. Especially in India, uh, there is a lot of emphasis on... Uh, programs which are career oriented, right? Uh, which is engineering or medicine or law in the areas of STEM, etc. Right? While obviously they have career linked benefits. There are a lot that recently has been a wave of universities that have come up in India and have said that look, this overemphasis on engineering and career related courses is unnecessary. We want to do an only arts university, right? Because it starts pushing the student in a certain direction in terms of their thought process, in terms of their uh, uh, mindset, and it really helps them 
do well in life uh, along with some of the other skills that they need. So there is requirement, at least that's the hypothesis that it's important that you do not overemphasize and over index on these hard skills, but you also explore arts, journalism, etc., which might put you in and give you a different perspective. So just, just wanted to get your, you know, thought on this because it's a very interesting thing when I think of, okay, now I have done engineering for my undergrad. Do I get any benefit from learning about world history? I want to learn. I have 10 hours a week. Do I spend 10 hours a week learning modern world history or do I spend 10 hours a week learning data science and how, how does that change my perspective in life? Well, knowing you, Falcon, I think you could do both. Uh, uh, but you've put your finger on a very, very important subject, very close to my heart, by the way. I'm a historian. I was trained as a historian. I taught history from, you know, uh, from the age of 22. I was very lucky to get a lectureship at that age, and I stayed in universities. But very early on, when I was doing my PhD, uh, I realized that I also needed something else. And I began to learn computer programming, Falcon. I actually wow. learned uh, Fortran, and I dis <laughs> dis discovered Algol 66. And I came to the conclusion, <laughs> I, and honestly, and I, I learned Pascal. And I actually, I, as a historian, people thought I was mad. They said, you don't need this. My head of department said that you're wasting your time. But I quickly realized that if you could combine the study of history, the context of the world you live in, and the digital skills to make sense of the data, which most historians ignore because they don't know how to handle it, right? If you combine those two, that's a very, very powerful combination. That's why we started in 1982, the Association for History and Computing, which spread to 35 countries, trying to get people to recognize that arts people need to be numerate, just as engineers need to be literate. And I think those combinations are the powerful combinations. It can't be one or the other. We need them all. But we need also people to be able to use the technologies of the modern age to actually use, to develop a subject, even if it's art, even if it's music, even if it's history. And I think the combination is what we will require. Digital skills, soft skills, human skills, and science. Wonderful. I think that's very, very interesting. The last question from my side, sir, and for today is, I've always wondered, and I have my own hypothesis on this, but I've always wondered that if you look at your historian, right? Uh, if you look at the oldest companies, right, that exist today, uh, corporates, they are probably 200, 300 years old at best, right? The major big ones that still exist today and companies die often. And if you look at the average age of a company on NASDAQ or uh, New York Stock Exchange, it's about probably 30, 40 years, not more than that. But if you look at universities, as you said, it's fascinating that the oldest university is almost 1300 years old. And there are a lot of universities that have survived thousands of years, like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard is probably 500, 600 years old. So the tenure of a university as an institution seems to be significantly longer than the tenure of a corporate enterprise, uh, which they seem to die out much sooner because of the disruptions that happen in the industry, which somehow educational institutions seem to be immune to. So I just wanted to get your view on why this happens. 
Well, first of all, I think you're talking about two different kinds of university, if I may say so. I think there are universities which have lasted all those centuries, but some of the most successful universities around are very, very recent. Uh, they're universities who've been created in the last 50 years, uh, and many of them actually are addressing a different experience of education to what was there in the past. The concept of higher education has been around as long as one can think. You know, this is this is inherent in, in our evolving civilization. But the way you deliver higher education is changing. And I think the recognition that you can acquire the highest level of learning without necessarily having to spend three years in a campus in a hall of residence, you know, with large lecture theatres. There are other ways of developing your skills. It's not one or the other, it's both. But I think we will be seeing, and I do think we will be seeing a different model emerging anyway, because I'm now a firm believer that online education, blended education, the kind of partnerships I referred to earlier, that is going to become far bigger than we've ever seen before. You think 10 years ago, Hardly any of the big providers now were in existence. I mean, Zoom only came in 2011. And look how many people are using that now. Um, yeah. So the reality is we are moving extremely quickly as a technology, as a society. And education is having to move just as fast. But it have to find new models because otherwise it will never provide for the vast majority of the population. And for me, that's the critical bit. It's how do you educate the people who never did have a chance to go to university, but who desperately need those skills to enhance their, their work ability, their work uh, ethic and their ability to work for a much, much longer working life. No, I think, I think this was a wonderful uh, session, uh, Sadia. And thanks a lot for emphasizing on a lot of these points. And they really resonate with me because... As you know, what we're trying to do at Upgrad is very similar to what you mentioned, where we partner with some of these top universities in India and internationally and try and bring these value propositions in terms of wonderful programs that people can use to upskill at the undergraduate level, at the postgraduate level, as somebody who's 18 years old or even as somebody who's 80 years old. And that entire lifelong learning journey and our ability and our vision to be the lifelong learning partner for that particular learner is something that we are very committed to. And I think it's a mission that is going to be around for a few decades for us to make sure that uh, uh, we become a part of our learners' lives. But as I said, and as something that you've emphasized over this podcast, I think it is definitely the future in terms of providing that flexibility uh, to do online, to do shorter courses, uh, to blend in with campus wherever required. And I think gone are the days when, as I said, you can say that, look, education was a one-time event and I'm 25 and I'm done and I'm not going to study for the rest of my life. I think those days are gone. But you do have to engage in this lifelong learning journey just to make sure that you're relevant, you work on exciting projects and you work in exciting roles. And as you said, Increasingly, there is this trend where an employer would love to see that you're constantly upskilling and you're enthusiastic about learning uh, and executing new projects and skills. So I think this was really interesting. And just one final question. Sorry, let me ask this is uh, we work very closely at Upgrad and you're involved with Upgrad in various ways and forms. 
what about this particular uh, concept of ours or vision of ours excites you uh, in particular uh, when you look at what we're trying to do? Let me say, Falcon, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to share my ideas with you, such as they are, and also to have the kind of relationship we're now developing, because I've been around for a long time. I have a, a strange career because I started out while I was uh, an academic. I was also involved heavily in television, and I was a presenter of television programs and the rest. I've still been working. I've been working in, in radio and television ever since. I'm still working now. But I also worked in computing for historians. I also tried to look at new methods of teaching and the rest. And for me, what is what Upgrad is doing is capturing so many of the things that I thought and believed in, but didn't have the opportunity all those years ago to actually realize. And the ability to actually take a very exciting technology, tremendous content, great partnership, and push it out globally to people who would never have a chance, really, to actually uh, get this opportunity, or people who've had the opportunity but want to do something different and expand their visions and their horizons. So for me, this is an exciting but a logical conclusion to all the things I've believed in for all these years, which is why I'm very grateful to you for the opportunity to be working with you. No, absolutely. It's a pleasure uh, for us to be working with you, Sardian. And thanks a lot once again today for your time uh, and for your valuable insights into the evolution of higher education and the evolution of lifelong learning as a concept. Thank you very much, uh, Sardian, once again. And thanks, everybody, for joining in today. Thank you, Falcon. Hi, listeners. Hope you found the series helpful. While this was the finale episode of the season, we will be back very soon to share many more insights that will help you accelerate your growth. Do share the podcast with your peers and let us know what you think about it in the comment section or shoot us an email to business at upgrad.com. Subscribe to the Accelerating Growth on your preferred podcast streaming apps to get updates about the new season. Stay safe, take care and see you soon.